Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. And we're going to skip over something that's going to annoy you, I know. But we're going to move into chapter 18 of John today, because I'm going to get Jesus raised from the dead by the end of April. All right, that, that is happening. We can't do John for a third year. I already get a bad name for that. So anyway, all right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you that I get to do what I do. I thank you for your word and um, how it speaks to me. God, remind me at times to just slow down and just soak it in for me because unless I grasp it and own it and love it, it will never come out of me the way it needs. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present today, that when I'm weak, you would be strong, and that you would teach us, and each woman here would receive the word you would specifically have for her today. God, I pray that you would handle all of the details of this ministry. Um, I'm not in charge, you're in charge. And help me just to rely on that and to trust in the waiting to see which direction you have for us to go. And so, Lord, I love you, and I pray that now we would just be able to enjoy digging in your word, understanding you more, seeing ourselves even in the pages of Scripture, but most important, seeing you. We sure love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, here's the dealio. Um. We ended, I think, last time we have been working our way through the upper room discourse. Do you remember? Are you with me? And we went through the triumphal entry when they've gone viral. It's on. It's happening. There's no stopping it now. And then they go in to share the Passover meal in the upper room. And Jesus has been saying to them all along, you know, I am going to die. And he even expressed that even more clearly through the Passover, which John does not go into in detail. But then he goes into the upper room discourse where um, he walks in. Remember, they're arguing over who is the greatest. Do you remember the scene? And instead of giving them a lecture, he acts out a parable. And he removes his outer garment, and he wraps his waist in a towel, taking on the form of the lowest servant, and he washes their feet. And he's like, listen, the only positions available in my kingdom are those of a servant. <laughs> so no servant is greater than his master. And then he begins to tell them things that they really don't want to hear. Number one, that someone has betrayed him in their close circle, um, that he is going away, and that where he is going, they cannot come. And then Peter says, no way, Jose, wherever you go, I'm going, even if it means my life. And he goes, Peter, by the end of this night, you will have denied me three times. And so then in chapter 14, he goes into this discourse. And do you remember how it starts? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why does he say that? Because their hearts are troubled because of all that they just heard. They thought they knew the direction, and then all of a sudden they realize they're not going that direction at all. They're questioning everything they thought they knew. And he is saying, 
Believe in God, believe also in me. Keep trusting, keep believing, even when you don't understand, even when the circumstances are confusing, even when you have questions, keep trusting in me. Why? I'll tell you why. Because I'm gonna give you some assurances in this world of no assurances. Number one, at the end of this dusty road, there is a room with your name on it, right? That is the end. We will be together. My family will be your family. My home will be your home. And you don't have to worry about how to get there. I've secured the way. Matter of fact, I am the way. It costs me everything I have. And I'm not going to give you directions. I'm coming to get you myself. I'm going to come and get you and take you to where I am so that there we will always be together. That is what you have waiting for you. That is your assurance. But in the meantime, I want you to know, you're not orphans. I haven't abandoned you. I'm not leaving you alone. Matter of fact, right now in your guts, you're so fearful that what we've experienced is coming to an end. And I'm telling you, it's just starting. You ain't seen nothing yet. You will see greater works than these, not in, um, you know, the works themselves, but in the magnitude of it, the multiplication of it. Don't take my distance to mean that I am not involved. I am involved. There is going to be another helper that will come. Another meaning the same kind helper, advocate. It is a legal term to come alongside, to strengthen. And not only will he be with you, he will be in you. And I know right now this is a lot to take in and you don't think you're ready and you don't know enough and you're right, you don't. But he will continue to teach you. And not only will he continue to teach you, he will remind you of everything I have already taught you. And with that comes this idea of not only just reminding but to understand, meaning they're going to have these aha moments, these get it moments. Oh, that's what that was about. Oh, now I see, now I get it. And he's like, and just because I'm leaving doesn't mean it's over. The testimony is going to continue. Yes, I testified. My father testified about me through the works. The scripture has testified. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will testify. You are a part of something big. You don't understand You're a part of something here. You have a purpose. You have a job to do. And the Holy Spirit's going to help you do that. And then he goes on to say, but then he is going to convict. It doesn't say they. They will testify. He will convict. And that word, I don't know if you remember, and I think I told you, it means two different things. It's convict, yes, like give a verdict. But it's also to convince to bring someone to recognition of something. And that is the Holy Spirit's job. He will convince, and at the end of the day, he will declare a verdict. Based on what? He said he will convict on sin, which is the truth about man, and about righteousness, which is the truth about God. And he will judge, which is a combination of the two. That is his job. And then he looks out, and I love this because I taught high school for so long. And let me tell you, I taught high school. Like, I poured into them. And I I would do everything I could to make that Bible come alive. But there would be a point where I would look at them in the classroom, and I would realize, Shannon, 
no matter how good you think you are or how dramatic you're being or how like exciting, they can't take another word. Why? I could see it happened with their eyes. All of a sudden, they would glaze. And they couldn't take an, and that's, I think that's exactly what he looks out. He is trying to get in these last words and assurances. And he looks and he says, oh, I would really like to tell you more. But you cannot bear it. So he said, you can't bear it. You can't take another word, but that's okay. Because the helper will what? He will continue to tell you of things to come. He will continue to give you progressive revelation. And so he is giving them these last words um, coming. And remember, we have in this process of all this discussion, we've been in the upper room. We've probably walked down the streets. That's why he gave, do you remember the I am the vine, you are the branches? I just suggested he possibly walked by the temple and saw that ornate vine um, because actually they believed Israel was the vine, right? And he's saying, no, I am the true vine. You must be in me. And we talked about how that is the mystery that they could not wrap their mind around. The fact in Ephesians 3 that Paul calls the mystery, the fact that the Gentile and the Jew would both be in Christ Jesus, forming a new family, a new people of God, a new body of Christ. And so they're walking and he's talking and now they're proceeding and guess where they're going? They're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where they're headed. Now, in the meantime, so he has, he has taught them all of this through this discourse. And then when you get to chapter 17, he gives his priestly prayer that I'm not going to teach you. But I want you to sit with this prayer because there's so much in it that like, I just have highlighted in my Bible that I... I just love to sit in. I, I love it when it says, um, in my Bible, I have a couple things highlighted. Verse three, and this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? Okay, here it is. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave for me to do. I love that. I mean, that's my calling. This is eternal life. That you know the one true God. And that you know the one Jesus whom he sent. And I hope, this is my hope, that I glorified you on earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave for me to do. I love also verse 8 where it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I always have to keep that in mind. Y'all don't belong to me. You belong to him. My job is to what? Manifest his word. That's what I do. I testify. It's not my job to convict or to convince. I testify as to the word. And I especially love this, but I'm going to tell you, this should make you go, hmm. Verse 20 I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's what he prayed. Do you understand what he prayed? That we would be one. 
as one body in Christ and in the Father, and that all being one, that the world may believe. I'm going to leave you with a hard question. Did God answer his prayer? Does it seem like he did on the surface? That's a good question. I'm just going to let you stew in it. Um, did he answer that prayer? I don't, I'm not talking about ultimately. Do you see that played out right now? That believers are one, just as Jesus is in the Father, and that by us being one, that the, that the world may know? Interesting. So, sit with that prayer for a while. Uh, Professor Proverb is totally upset I'm not doing chapter 17, but I can't. 18, are you ready? Um, so, he's been telling them for a while that he is going to die. He's even used the bread and the cup uh, through the Lord's Supper. He has not only told Peter that he is going to deny him, but he has basically told all of them that they will fall away. Let me read some of 18 um, just a little bit. Actually, I want to look at, go to Matthew 26. Because I'm going, to use some of, I'm going to use some of Matthew today. Okay, I'm going to start reading in chapter 30, just a little background. And then we're going to look at Gethsemane, not just through John, but we're going to look at it through Matthew also. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Do you see what all he's telling them? Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus says, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Isn't it amazing? Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows Peter. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if, this, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. I'll stop right there. So he tells them in advance, he tells Peter, you will deny me. Not only will you deny me, but you all will fall away. And he quotes Zechariah 13. Um, remember the whole issue with hyperlinks? All right. He is speaking in a code when he says things like this. Their mind goes back to these prophets. What, what's the overall? So Zechariah is a really hard book, by the way. It's a collection of all kinds of visions that he has. Zechariah was a prophet that came after the Babylonian exile when they were already planted back, when the Persians let them come back. But the idea of the prophets is the prophets 
are always talking about the history of Israel, like where they've come from, the fact that they were in bondage in Egypt, you know the story, and God freed them from Egypt, and then really quickly, what do they do? Once they've entered into the covenant, they, they really quickly betray him. And, and we have the whole scene with the golden calf, and then as they continue on this journey, God continues to always provide. But what do they do? They always reject God. They always reject him and they fail to walk in his precepts. And so the prophets are always talking about the fact that this people, this nation of Israel, they need a leader, right? And God along the way brings leaders and he brings prophets to speak to them. But what do they do? (laughs) They kill the prophets, right? So the prophets know that they need a leader, They know that they need someone to follow. But the fact is, if you read the prophets, they are not very optimistic about what this nation will do even when they get the leader. They're not optimistic. They talk about the coming son of David and the coming Messiah, but they're not optimistic of what the nation will do even when they get that leader. More probable, they say, and they say through all kinds of different ways and visions, that Just like they have all the other prophets, they're eventually going to reject this Messiah or this son of David that is being sent, and they will ultimately kill him. Yet the ironic thing is that by doing that, they're actually ushering in their own what? Salvation. You see how that works? The fact that their own rebellion, their own propensity to reject that leader, and the fact that one day when that leader comes, they're going to reject him too, and they're going to put him to death. But even by doing that, God allowed that to be the means to their own salvation. So here we are. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. The brook Kidron. If you've been in Israel, okay, there is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives comes down into the Kidron Valley, which then comes up to the side of the Temple Mount. All right? And so the Kidron Valley is between the Mount of Olives and the temple. And there is the brook that runs through. If, uh, if you're interested in Old Testament links, do you remember the fact that the Messiah would be, right, the son of David or the branch? Do you remember that? The shoot of Jesse. Well, if you go back to 2 Samuel 15, you know how much I love the Samuels in the life of David. If you remember that story, there is a foreshadowing of what we see right here. Do you remember when King David, his son, Absalom, do you remember this? He revolts against his father and he takes over the kingdom. And it says that basically the nation at one point rejected David as their king. It says the hearts of the people people went after Absalom. Well, David also had a counselor, I can't remember his name, Ahithophel, Ahithophel. He had this counselor that was his personal counselor. He literally betrayed David. 
and he went after and helped Absalom. So you have this whole foreshadowing of the king rejected by his people, betrayed by one of his closest allies, and do you know what Ahithophel ended up doing? He took his own life. Are you seeing it? Really interesting. And it says that when David was rejected... He had to leave the city, right, to basically to save his life. Ahithophel has betrayed him. And it says that he comes and he walks down through the Kidron Valley across the brook of the Kidron, and he wept the whole way all the way up to the Mount of Olives. It's such a foreshadow of what will happen with the Messiah, this son of David, when his nation will reject him, one of his closest allies will betray him, who eventually will take his own life. Um, it's also interesting, what time of year is it? Remember? It's Passover. What happens at Passover? Many lambs. Our sacrifice, uh, Josephus says that upwards of one year, it was more than 250,000 lambs. Think about that. That's a lot of blood. And that blood runs down the altar into the basins along the altar. But when that is cleaned out, when that is water is added and that is cleaned out, there was a drainage system that went down and guess where it entered out? It emptied out into the Kidron Valley many believing that you would have seen that coming through the brook Kidron. And so picture this, here's this son of David, this king. Remember the covenant with David that someone from his line would be the everlasting king. They think it means earthly king, right? But we, we know not. And he is walking out. His nation has rejected him or is going to reject him. He is coming through the Kidron Valley knowing his closest has betrayed him. And he is walking through this bloody mess of all of these lambs that have been slaughtered on his behalf knowing that he is the Passover lamb. This is the scene. There's a lot going on in the background of this. Gethsemane literally means olive press or the place of crushing, um, the most valuable part of the olive was the oil. So that meant the most valuable thing. I mean, the olive must be crushed to get the value. And this entire place is going to be a place, the olive was crushed and then these huge stones were laid on top and the weight of the stones would press out the oil. And depending on the nature of the oil, they would do it up to three times to get all of the oil out. And you have this scene here where Jesus is finally come to the place of this pressing where the weight of what is about to happen on the cross, the sin of the world is going to be placed on him. And this pressure, and you have the whole scene, and Luke describes it as, and he was sweating the great drops of blood, right? You have the the olive oil, the, the red, the blood. You have all of this scenery, the place, of, the place of crushing. But I also want you to remember what we've talked about in the past. He's been walking under the shadow of the cross from the beginning. It's not just now. I mean, that shadow, the cross has been over him, that shadow through the entire, his entire life and ministry. We've said before, can you imagine if you knew what was coming, if I knew the future of what was coming, 
I can tell you right now, I wouldn't be able to live in the present. I would allow the future to ruin every moment of my present because I would have anxiety over it. Would you? How in the world did he laugh with his disciples? How did he enjoy weddings and ministry? And he literally showed us what it is, even with this impending doom, this this moment, the shadow of the cross, how to every day trust God in that present, leave the future into his hands. But now he is arriving at his hour and there is going to be a great crushing. Did you see how it said a garden? I'm just showing you some fun things in this first verse. It's a garden. When you think of that, where do you go in your mind? I mean, here he is in a garden. Paul refers to him as the second Adam, the second man. The first man was placed in a what? In a garden. And so with this paradise, the Garden of Eden in paradise with nothing lacking, he chose to sin. In this garden, garden where there is the greatest pressing, he chose to obey. One hid, one presented himself to the Father. As I mean, you, you could sit and think about that all day long in your journal. But this is the scene of what, um, what we're looking at. It says that he takes the 12 into the garden. That's not unusual because it was a place they went often. Later on, when it says that Judas brings them there, right? It was not unusual. He knew where he was because that was the normal place that they would go. They would normally go to fellowship with God. Jesus took time with his father in the garden. And so the 12 were familiar with this garden. And they would have camped out there that night because... For the Passover, you weren't allowed to leave the city limits. They could not have gone into Bethany. So they camped right out in the garden. And so the 12 have gone. And then he takes the three even further, which I'm sure you've heard messages about the 12 and the three and having a group of people, but then having your closest. Do you remember the cool things that the three got to see that the other 12 did not? Do you remember any of them? One was Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. Only Peter, James, and John got to see that. The transfiguration, right? And you remember what they were talking about at the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah came down and talked to Jesus, and it says they were talking to him regarding his departure, his death. And then here, at the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John went further. What do all three of those have in common? Death, right? And so here they are. They've come even closer. And he, it says that he is sorrowful and troubled, right? I don't normally say I'm sorrowful. What do you say? Or troubled. I, I'm sad. I'm distressed. I'm agitated. I'm going to suggest to you that what we see right here is that Jesus is having a full-on panic attack. If you've ever had one, a full on panic attack. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Do you understand? My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. I can't even imagine. We're talking about Jesus. He's the rock. I mean, they've seen emotion come out of him before. They've seen him display emotion. What kind of emotions? 
anger when he flipped the tables, love, compassion. They've seen him have absolute composure at all times, even when he was being questioned. They've seen his great intelligence. No matter what has happened, he has always shown composure. But now he is completely coming unglued. I got to thinking, can you remember in your life someone who represented absolute stability to you the moment you first saw them come undone? Do you have that moment? Maybe it's a parent or whoever it is. They had always been that person of composure, that strong one. And something happened and you watched them come undone. It, it's devastating to watch that, to watch that kind of person in agony. I put, he is the stability of the universe. And right now he is falling to pieces. He is so upset that he cannot even put it into words. So do you know what he does? He quotes a Psalm. If you look at your footnote, when it says that my soul is sorrowful unto death, he is quoting Psalm 42. So there's your hyperlink into the soul of what is happening inside of Jesus. When you can't put it into words, you take it back to this, and I'm just going to read some of it. Psalm 42, 9 through 11. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What is happening in that psalm? If you want to look at it, look at it, because Psalm 42, 9 through 11. I see a transition. Do you see one in there? The first part, 9 and 10, you're, you're seeing his emotion. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? I am wounded to my bones, he's saying. Such a deep hurt. My adversaries taunt me. They keep saying all day long, where is your God? And then look what happens in 11. What happens? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He is feeling that emotion, but we're watching him work out the emotion. Do you see that? Do you see his self-talk in this? His emotion is full. He is mourning. He is grieving. He is sorrowful to death, but he's working through it. He is doing <clears throat> what he told them to do. Don't let your hearts be troubled. <clears throat> believe in God. Believe also in me. What did that mean? Believe for the first time? No, it means keep believing, keep trusting. I know you're troubled. I know you're sorrowful, but hold on. Keep believing. And he commands them to do that. It's an imperative for them to do that. And so we know that emotions are important, but we're not slaves to them. And he shows us he's working it out. He's fully human, feeling fully human, emotion and panic and anxiety 
and you're watching him work out his very own soul. Tell himself, no, trust God. Come on, soul, trust God. And the fact is, did any of this take him by surprise? Is he surprised by the hour? No, he's not surprised at all. Hasn't he known the hour was coming from the beginning? Has he not been telling his disciples for quite some time now that he would die? Yes, but knowledge does not negate the feelings of it. And this is the moment that he has to sit in the feelings of it. This is the moment he has to face the true humanity of this. We are seeing him in his full humanity. We are watching him work through his feelings. All he needed from his closest friends is for them to remain and watch with him. It says, and going a little further, he fell on his face. One thing I know is the disciples couldn't go as far as he was going. He went a little further. They couldn't experience the depth. They couldn't understand what all he was wrestling inside. It wasn't for them to go where he was going. He just needed them to go as far as they could and wait. You know, I thought about this even in our own earthly friendships. We can't always relate with each other's grief. My friends who have not lost children, they can't go as far as I'm going to go. They can't. They don't know what it is. They can't relate to it. I don't want them to have to. They can't understand the weight of it. They can't understand the anxiety of it, the depression of it. They can't go as far. He knew they couldn't go as far. They had no idea what he was dealing with. They had no idea the weight that was going to be on him and what that meant. But he took his three closest, as close as he could, and all he needed them to do was just wait, just sit, just remain, just pray, just watch. That's what he needed them to do because they could not possibly understand. And it says that when he went there, he literally fell on his face. That is what happens in a grief like that. The body collapses. It can't carry it. It cannot carry the weight of that much pain, and the body collapses to the ground. We're seeing him in all of his humanity, which tells me this. We may have people in our lives and other, who can't understand our grief and our pain and what we've been through, but there is nothing he can't understand. He has been to the depths of anxiety and depression and betrayal and aloneness. He has felt it all. The king of kings, the one who made the ground, collapsed to the ground under that pressure, and he felt it. He knew what the dark night of the soul was. And he will be there when you have yours. He completely understands what we're going through. You cannot go deeper than he can relate. He knows. And he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
So I want to talk about this cup for a minute. I think it's misunderstood in many ways. What is the cup? The cup is the cup of judgment or wrath. Okay? There's an element of justice in there. Okay? That's the cup. And he is asking if there's any way that cup can pass from me. Now, the prophets talk about the cup. It's, it's all through the Old Testament. And they do it with imagery. All right? One of them, and I'm going to give you three. You can kind of look at it. Psalm 75 has it. I didn't write the verse. I don't know why, but you'll have to find it. Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25. But I'm going to use Psalm 75 just to show you a little bit. Psalm 75 says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all of its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let me give you the picture of this cup. It is a picture of this, in my mind, uh, amazing chalice. And it is filled with a deep red, blood red wine. This is the picture in all this poetry. That is mixed, meaning it's mixed with spices. It foams. It is highly intoxicating. This is the picture of this cup. And in the picture of it, there's something about it that we desire. It, it draws us. But the fact is that as we drink it, we realize, he says, but one day I am going to pour it down their throats until they drink it all the way down to the dregs. So through the other parts of the prophets, you see him talking about pouring the cup out on people, some of the cup. This judgment, he judges different people. But in this instance, he's saying there's coming a day where I will take that cup, that very thing you thought you wanted, all that foaming, intoxicating, and you will drink, but I will pour it down your throats until you have to drink it down to the dregs. And when you do, you will stagger in drunkenness, and that will be your demise. Okay, it is this idea of this just what you deserve. It's, it's basically what Paul puts into words, and it says <clears throat> in Romans 1 that God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. 
N.T. Wright says this, because of the nature of his love, he will not always be stepping in and calling time before the appointed moment. If he did, too many who might yet repent and be rescued would be caught in the middle. But he will let evil take its course and bring its own nemesis. And at a moment which only he is in any position to judge, he will bring the necessary closure of the world's wrongs. In other words, at one moment designed by him, he will force evil to drink the cup of justice and wrath down to the dregs for their destruction. That which you so desired, he will give you and it will be your demise. Do you understand that? That is the cup, the cup of judgment, the cup of God's wrath, of what it is we deserve to destruction. That is the cup that Jesus will drink. That is the cup he is saying, can that be taken away from me? Is there any other way? I want you to think of the depravity of man to the highest that you can think of. The injustices, the wickedness that has happened throughout mankind. And think of what justice and judgment could possibly come to that. And all of that foaming in a chalice. And Jesus being willing to drink that wrath and judgment for all of that. For you. I don't think we can possibly even imagine the pressure, the pressing that is happening here. And he is saying, if there is any other way, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. I know this is what we agreed, but are you sure are you sure there is no other way? You know what this tells me? There's no other way. This right here tells me. The brutality of the cross, the fact that Jesus, the greatest man that ever walked this earth, that did nothing but always lay down his life when he got to this moment and he felt the weight of this moment, he asked the question that we're still asking today. Is this the only way? He didn't want to do it. I got to think about that this morning. I was driving here and I was like, my goodness, it always comes back to this question. Is this the only way? And to me, Jesus had a full on right to ask that. Is this the only way? Are you sure? Because I'm the one that's going to have to drink it. If anybody could ask the question, it was him to me. <laughs> But to think about us asking that question, that's a whole different mood to me. This one is in humility saying, if there's no other way, I will. This one over here is like, there has to be another way. How can you look at the face of that, realize what he gave up, and not realize that he did it out of great love for you because it was absolutely the only way you could be saved. And you question it. This is haughty. This is pride. 
One asked the question, who's going to pay? One asked the question, and we're the one that gets to receive it. I thought about that for a long time driving here today. But he says this, but not as I will, but as you will. Where did he get those words, by the way? They should sound familiar to you. But not as I will, but as you will. Oh, you know it. Come on. I'll give you a hint. It's in a prayer. Yeah, the Lord's Prayer. Say it to me. Our Father. (laughs) Y'all are all brain dead. (laughs) Have you glazed over? We have six minutes. (laughs) Okay, let's try this again. Do we know the Lord's Prayer? Yes, we do. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, we got, we got that part, right? He, do you see what he's doing? When he taught them how to pray, he taught them how to pray like he prays. Not my will, Father. Your will be done. I want your will to be done on earth right here, just as your will is done in heaven. And he literally is submitting himself to the Father. In his agony, he still acknowledges that Jesus is his Father. Did you see that? No matter how painful, and how painful was it? Well, in Psalm 42, it says that it is a deadly wound into the bone. It is talking about a hurt so deep, he is expressing it through the psalm. And he wanted above all his Father's will to be done. No matter what his emotions were, no matter how loud his emotions were crying out, he was crying out truth even louder. He was telling himself, no, God is my father. I am not alone. He loves me. My hope is in God. He is my salvation. There is no other way. He is fighting emotion. Emotion said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? That's emotion. Because he felt the separation when sin was laid on him in the cross. I do not believe you can separate the Trinity. But I believe that God was so clouded by the weight of sin that Jesus, he could not feel the relationship with the Father for once in his life. And he cried out, my God, my God, how have you forsaken me? That's emotion. But what is truth? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Emotion is, I feel alone and I can't see you. I feel a separation. But truth is, but I know I'm not. So into your hands, I trust you. I commit my spirit. I'm going to tell you, when you really look at this, there is nothing we can ever experience that Jesus has not experienced. This feeling of darkness and aloneness and betrayal and separation and pressure. And at the end of the day, what did he do? He overcame that emotion and that pressure. He trusted the Father. He trusted the Father till the bitter end. He trusted the Father when the shadow was over the cross. He trusted the Father when the weight landed on him. At Gethsemane, he trusted the Father on the cross to the bitter end till he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. We get a first row seat to the darkest night of Jesus' soul. When he is coming to terms with what he is going to take. He is going to rescue his people by not being rescued. He is going to rescue his people by not being rescued. 
And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Could you not watch? And he specifically talks to who? Peter. Peter, dude, uh, you have a dark night of the soul coming yourself. You have no idea. You should not be sleeping. You should be praying. In another uh, synoptic, it talks about because Satan has asked for you to sift you, right? And so his dark night of the soul is coming. He said, could you not at least stay awake? And then we watch Jesus do this two more times. But I want you to know he's progressing. I want, later, go look at that. Go see how the prayers are different. One is talking about pleading, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. If there's any other way. But then he is... He's sinking into this. Okay, I know there's no other way. Thy will be done. There is no other way. Thy will be done. And he is working through it. Um, sometimes I think these disciples, and this will be my last thought, get a bad rap, you know. It talks about the fact that uh, I think Luke says, or does it say in this one that their eyes were heavy? Um, but Luke twenty two forty five 45 says this, he found them sleeping for sorrow. I thought that was kind of weird. And I've never noticed that before. He found them sleeping for sorrow. But then I thought, well, of course they are. Think about the day they've had. Are you with me? All of what we've talked about for three weeks is in a day. They have come in and they have had the highlight of the world, right? Like there has been such excitement and they've been handling crowds and hooping and hollering and doing all this and they've been preparing and, and then they've been setting up for the Passover meal and they've gone all through this Passover meal and they've then gone from here to here when they found out one's going to betray them and, and Peter's going to deny and Jesus is going somewhere and they've been hearing and he's been teaching and teaching and teaching and they've been walking and now they've come up to it's night it's finally night and they're up it's been a day I mean it has been a day and they get quiet under a tree in a garden they are tired for sorrow but then I got to thinking about Jesus how in the world do you know that your hour is approaching? It's here. And what have you been filling your time with the entire time? Encouraging them. That's all he's done. He's encouraged them. He's getting his last words in. And what is he encouraging them? Abide in my love that your joy may be full. In me, you will have peace because in this world, you will have trouble. And he has been with them and catering to them and loving on them and teaching them and encouraging them. And finally, when he gets to the point where he has to go encourage his own soul, they fall asleep. Oh, they fall asleep. That's who Jesus is. But I love that Luke and people uh, disagree over it, but I love how Luke talks about that at one point, an angel comes and tends to Jesus. Um, I don't believe he gave him any kind of supernatural strength to get through it. Jesus got through what he did, fully man. 
It, we have no words of what was said. And maybe that's because nothing was said. He didn't need Peter, James, and John to say anything either. He needed to just stay awake and to remain with him and to pray. And maybe that's exactly what this angel did. He just sat with him and strengthened him to prepare him. This was one of the greatest temptations. Remember in Luke, when it talks about the temptation, it says that when the devil left him after the temptation in the wilderness, he waited for another opportune time. One of those times was Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus talked about his death and Peter goes, oh, no, 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 you're not going to die. And he realized that was the words of Satan coming out of Peter's mouth. And he says, be gone, get away from me. And this was another, we cannot imagine the weight of the temptation that he faced in this garden of Gethsemane. But what is so cool is as you study him working out that dark night of the soul, when he finally arised out of it, He's ready. At that moment on, there is no question. From that moment on, next week, you will see that he is the one that takes the first step forward to the soldiers, and he is in control, and he has his eye set on the cross. He has worked out that dark night of the soul, and he has submitted his will to the Father. There is a lot of lessons in this, right? We all have emotion we have anxiety, we have depression, we have all of these things, but we have the ability to claim truth, to see lies, to believe God, believe also in me, to work out those dark nights of the soul. We have the ability to sit with each other in it. There are so many lessons in this. Take this week, I've just given you some highlights, and journal how these things come across to you personally. If all you do is come in here every Tuesday, all you're doing is chewing my, eating my regurgitated food. That's it. That's nasty. That's all you're doing. I'm chewing it up. I'm applying it. I'm doing all this. And honestly, I do it for me, and then I tell you about it. But if that's all you do every week, you'll survive. You'll live, and you'll have enough morsels to get through some stuff. But you have no idea the feast that is waiting for you. If you get in here and now you have things to think about and explore and maybe I've just got you going and you come in and you really spend time in the word. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you worked out this dark night of the soul. I thank you, Lord, that you were able to do what no man could ever do to submit the flesh, to submit humanity to the absolute will of the Father. Lord, I thank you for drinking the cup. My earthly mind cannot even fathom what that really was like. I can think about atrocities in this world. And I can think about my desire for justice to be had. Anyone that talks to me about a God of love but lacking in justice doesn't know what a God of love is. Because if you're on the underside of justice, you're crying out for it. Love and justice go together perfectly in God. And so God, one day at your appointed day, you will pour out that cup on evil and evil will drink it to the dregs and will stagger and be destroyed. But God, I am thankful that for me, you drank it.
And for me, I am free from God's wrath. I am no longer under that judgment, but I am a child of God because you paid my debt. And the fact is, Lord, you press through every human deep emotion we can ever imagine to will yourself to that cross because you loved me. May I never forget that. May I never forget that when I have anxiety. May I never forget that when I have depression. May I never forget that I'm a part of something when I long to go to heaven and I'm not there yet. May I never forget that when I think some ministry is mine or I have to work out every detail. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning it shame to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. Lord, may we focus on you this season when we will be celebrating the greatest event that ever happened in mankind, when you took our punishment and you died and three days later you rose. We should be the most joyful individuals on the planet. We have great hope. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.